You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. Thanks for joining us and being part of your church family today. Let's pray together and we'll jump in uh, to the book of Daniel. Father, we are grateful for your word. Lord, I ask that we will be good stewards of it in terms of me preaching, in terms of us receiving, that you'll open our minds and our eyes and our hearts, our ears, to know what it is that your scriptures have to say. I acknowledge that my opinion is not what's important. Uh, What matters is what you have to say, your words. So I ask we'll put ourselves under that authority and that you'll keep the enemy out of this place and out of our church, out of our city, and maybe all the churches in our community as we all gather in different locations today, that all of us will proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. And it's in his great name we ask this. Amen. So the book of Daniel, the big idea of this book, just to jump right in, is how God's people should live as strangers and exiles in a world that is not their home. How God's people should live as strangers and exiles in a world that is not their home. Now that is a common thread throughout the Bible, of that understanding that God's people ultimately are not from here. Yes, we live here, but our citizenship is in heaven. It's in a world to come. Our loyalties are ultimately not here on this earth. The book of 1 Peter says this, chapter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, which is unbelievers in this context, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. As in it's bigger than us. It's bigger than just our lives, our family, our church. It's, it's about the global presentation of the gospel to all people. That how we conduct ourselves, how we show our ultimate loyalty is not to this world, will ultimately point people to the name of Jesus Christ, the world that is to come. Book of Hebrews says this, we do not have an enduring city here. This is temporary. So instead, there's a response to that reality. We seek the one to come. He goes, therefore, through him, let us continually offer up to God through Christ a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that confess his name. So our worship is not of man. It's not of this world. It's not of popular opinion. Because we know this world is temporary and we seek another one, the result of that is our praise and worship is of God through Jesus Christ. So keep that in mind, that reality of a thread and the theme throughout the Bible as we go back to this ancient time of Babylon in the book of Daniel. Chapter one, in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. So taking things from, taking God's people, invading God's house, and now using it and taking the vessels to a pagan temple for a false God. Yet we see this little mention in there that God allowed it to happen. We're seeing that God is sovereign over all of this. The king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility, young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. It's kind of cool in the Bible to describe you. That was pretty neat. He was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. 
In other words, indoctrination. So we're getting these people, God's people, to a foreign land. Not only did God allow it, we see that God caused it in his sovereignty. Because here he's working out his judgment, his redemption in his people. And Babylon's a huge part of that. He promised them this would happen because of their rebellion. But here are his people. Now they're being taught Chaldean language and literature. And they're not taking it because they have to have these required foreign languages in high school in order to get into college. This is not Spanish 1, Spanish 2, Latin 1, Latin 2, French, whatever it might be. They're taking this now because they're being indoctrinated with the values and the worldview and the theology, we could say, of Babylon. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to attend the king. Among them, for the Judahites, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief eunuch gave them names. He gave them the name Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. So even they're receiving Chaldean names here, like a full indoctrination. Not the people of Israel anymore, not God's people. Now you're going to be absorbed into Chaldean culture in Babylon. But we see Daniel, something happens here. Daniel determined... It's a very purposeful, convictional act when it says that he determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. Now, why would he do that? That's really important we let the Bible be ambiguous where it is and not force things into the scriptures. So the best thing we can do here is just kind of take maybe a couple of different assumptions uh, based on just history and how this all kind of flows together. I think there's two possibilities here of why he would do that. One is that this food could have been sacrificed to idols. So he wants nothing to do with that. He's not going to eat food sacrificed to idols uh, as someone who worships the one true God. Uh, but, or second, a meal uh, in this culture was very intimate. It's not like you drive by a fast food restaurant on your way home and grab something real quick or meet a buddy for 15 minutes to catch up you know, on the way to work really fast. It actually meant something, like sit down, have a meal together. It symboled relationship, agreement, you know, fellowship, and perhaps that Daniel wanted nothing to do with that. But what we do know, what we do know is he said, I will not eat this food as it is presented to me. While you're indoctrinating me, I still remember who I am. Like I'm a child of God. And thankfully, Daniel had his religious upbringing through the church, as it was, would have been then, which would have been the temple, which would have been the entire sacrificial system, the festivals, all the things that it meant to be Jewish that allowed him, now in this land that's not his own, to live for the Lord. Like, I hope you understand how significant it is, especially if you're parents in this room, to make the local church a priority for your life and for your family and to find a church that preaches the Bible and the word of God unashamedly, that believes God loves us, and believes since God loves us, he has given us his word and given us his truth. Why? Because the noise all around us will be competing for everything else. Chaldean indoctrination happens every single day. So think about it. I get 40 minutes with you up here, whoever's preaching, 40 minutes, and the rest of the world is just messaging all the time. What a critical thing for us to make a decision to say this is going to matter to our lives because the only way we'll be able to stand for God in Babylon and Chaldean indoctrination. And I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about theology and belief and worldview and the scriptures and worship of God or worship of the things of this world. 
It's the only way we can stand true. And this is a prescription God has given us. He says in the book of Hebrews, to not forsake gathering together. So we can encourage one another, be equipped, be reminded together of who we are and what God has done. We see God's sovereignty all over Daniel. We see in verse 17, God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding and every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. So God's positioning them to make an impact. He's positioning them to be taken care of in this hostile and foreign world. At the end of the time, the king had said to, to present them, the chief eunuch presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king interviewed them, and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they began to attend the king. Here are God's people having access to the most powerful person in the world, living faithfully in front of him, loyal to another God, but faithfully being good citizens here where they live. In every matter of wisdom and understanding the king consulted them about, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and mediums in his entire kingdom. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, yes, God is allowing this to happen. It's just very unique for these people at this time. But my old college president used to always say, if it's Christian, it should be better. And he didn't mean that in a flashy or a showy way, but if you're representing the name of Christ in your workplace, in the place where you live, people should know it. Why? Because you work harder, you show up on time, you do it the right way, you pursue excellence in your life, like you don't cut corners. And as the scripture said earlier that I read from 1 Peter, if they try to say something bad about you, that they can't because they know who you are and what you're about. If it's Christian, it really should be better. So here are these people, these men, and they're being noticed by the king because of their faithfulness and the tasks they've been given. Yes, God gave them this. This yes, is unique. Yes, it's for they were given those gifts to see dreams and visions for that unique period at that unique time, but the principle is still there for us of how we should be noticed by the secular world around us when it comes to our work and the things that we do. It is possible, we see here in Daniel, to live a faithful life in exile, surrounded by secular influence of indoctrination and propaganda if one's mind is set to serving the Lord wholeheartedly and being part of his mission. It is possible. We see this from the book of Daniel. And then in chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and he's all freaked out about it. Here is like the most powerful man in the world and a dream freaks him out. That's how limited he is. That's how weak he is. That a dream paralyzes him. So he makes this call that someone needs to interpret the dream for him. And if people can't do it that he asks, they're gonna be killed. This is a madman here. And here's what they say in verse 10. The Chaldeans answer the king, no one on earth can make known what the king requests. Here's the thing, they're right. Because worldly wisdom and the knowledge of this world is not going to work in a moment like this. It must depend on a foreign wisdom, a miracle that we can't explain outside of the greatness of God. So God allows Daniel to be the one who interprets the dream. He's confronted with this desperate situation. Like Daniel's a human. Like he knows if he doesn't do it that he and his friends are going to die. So what does he do instead? Verse 17, Daniel went to his house, this is chapter 2, and told his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter, urging them to ask the God of the heavens for mercy concerning this mystery. He goes to God in prayer. He acknowledges his dependence upon God and desperately asks God to move. Why? So Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the, best of with the rest of Babylon's wise men. The mystery was then revealed to Daniel in a vision at night. God answered his prayer, and Daniel praised the God of heavens. 
He declared God's greatness. Verse 44, we see this. In the days of those kings, after he interpreted the dream, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. He's telling this most powerful man in the world, Nebuchadnezzar. And this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it itself will endure forever. Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, Chaldean culture, you are temporary. You are not as powerful and mighty and wise and great as you think you are. There is one who is great. And he is our God, the one true God. And his kingdom one day will be fully ushered into this world. And no other kingdom will be able to stand against it. When I read that, I say, well, whose side do I want to be on? The side of the temporary culture or the side of God? And that's kind of arrogant to say, you're the one who's on God's side. Well, and that's a fair thing to think. I believe that the way we are on God's side is by God's grace through Jesus Christ, putting ourselves under the authority of his word. Not my ideas, not my wisdom, but God's word and God's wisdom. The way we can know what God's side is is because he's told us. And it's not defined by any kingdom or tribe or empire or party or anything of this world. It's otherworldly altogether now here for the people of God living for his kingdom in a world that's not our own. And we have confidence knowing that this kingdom is passing away and that's a good thing. Even Nebuchadnezzar is under his rule. Then we see a pretty famous story in the Bible, Daniel chapter 3, which we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. This is a story you hear about a lot as vacation Bible school as a kid. And here's what we're told about the story. I want to read you the whole thing from Daniel 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the province to attend the dedication of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. I love that it includes the had set up part. It's like Nebuchadnezzar's not worthy of worship himself, so he has to have someone make a statue for him, and he sets it up. So satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, Daniel clearly wants you to know that everyone was there. And all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue the king had set up. Then they stood before the statue Nebuchadnezzar had set up. A herald loudly proclaimed, people of every nation and language, You were commanded, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, you're to fall face down and worship the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Now later in the scriptures we see that we're promised that one day every tongue, tribe, and nation will worship at the feet of Jesus Christ. This is like the adverse flip of that. Instead, every tongue and tribe and nation is gonna worship the world and worship the ruler, and worship the political system, and the earthly kingdom of power. He says, but whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Like there's consequences for not worshiping the Babylonian king. There's gonna be consequences for not bowing down to the culture. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lair, harp, and every kind of music, people of every nation and language fell down and worshiped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. All you gotta do is threaten some harm, tell people to get in line, make people scared, and what are they gonna do? They're gonna bow down and they're gonna worship. Times have not changed. Talk about that in a second. Some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. 
you as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. But guess what, king? We caught somebody. There are some Jews. You've appointed, you put them in power to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you. The king, they do not serve your gods. I love that they notice that. They don't serve your gods. Or worship the gold statue you have set up. In a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I have set up? Now if you're ready, I'm going to give you, I'm a reasonable guy, he's trying to say. Here's the accusation, I'm going to give you another chance. If you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, like you have been warned, you'll be immediately thrown into a furnace of blazing fire, and who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Nebuchadnezzar has a short memory. Chapter two, Daniel interprets his dream that no one else could. And here he's going, who's your God and how can he stand up to me? I'm the one who deserves worship. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. We're not bound to you. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, it doesn't change our faith. It doesn't change our being assured that he is the one he claimed to be. We want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Not happening, man. Circumstances don't change the fact that we believe that he is God and you were not. And Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was customary. And he commanded some of the best soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. These men's in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes were tied up and thrown into the furnace of a blazing fire. So the king's command was so urgent, the furnace extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Like, you want evidence? It's not some like fairy tale. Even the king's people, like, like go ask the king. They were even killed because the fire was so hot. And these men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the furnace of blazing fire fire. Why? Because they would not answer the cultural call and political pressure to bow down to Babylon. Why? Because they were the people of God and lived for a different world and had a different authority. You might go, well, Romans chapter 13 says we should obey the authorities that God has, placed, has put in place. That's definitely a Bible verse, and I believe that every word of the Bible is true. So how does that fit here? Well, this is an example of a precedent in the scriptures of how the limit to that is doing something that would cause you to violate God's word. Like if the state calls you to do something that would go against what the scriptures tell you in your conscience, we are not bound by that. And this passage right here is precedent for that. Not the law tells you to put on your seatbelt or whatever, that's different, that doesn't violate your faith. But this right here clearly would. And what we've seen Throughout culture, oftentimes, throughout history, I should say, are Christians who profess the name of Christ, 
but when given the opportunity to choose Babylon or the word of God under cultural pressure, financial pressure, PR, social, whatever it might be, can easily cave and go with the demands of King Nebuchadnezzar in a figurative sense rather than go with the word of God. But thankfully, we have seen Christians over history who have also stood up and said, we are not gonna disobey the word of God out of cultural pressure. I think of, not, and clearly not enough of them, but I think of white Christians during Jim Crow Deep South life. White Christians who stood up against cultural pressure and said, we absolutely will not tolerate the mistreatment of our black brothers and sisters. There was clearly not enough who did that. On the, other, on the other flip side, how many people who proclaim the name of Christ and claim to be Christians went to churches on Sunday morning and even taught Sunday school were the very ones carrying out the oppression and the racism and the persecution and the abuse? Choose which one. It might sound obvious to you when you hear that, but sadly that was not the case. I think of how many black Christian men and women, professors in the name of Christ, who were willing to stare right back at death. Many of them did experience that and say, no way. You, you can put us in the furnace. We are not gonna bow down to this ungodly, inhumane practices that tell us that we are subhuman because of the color of our skin. I know pastors who have gotten fired in the Deep South for speaking about racial issues, for being unashamed to go there. And they knew they were gonna have financial consequences, they have families to feed, all those kind of things, and they said, I'm gonna choose God over, throw me in the furnace, God's able to protect me, and if he chooses not to, you know what? He's still God, and this is sin. We could have so many different things. I know people who have refused Refused to bow down to political candidates who were told, this is the Christian vote, this is the Christian person. I'm not being involved in that. Financial pressure, whatever it might be, doesn't matter. Put me in the furnace, does not matter. I'm not going there. I believe this generation of Christians has a Daniel 3 moment right in front of them at this moment. I believe there's a Daniel chapter 3 moment happening right in front of us through advertising on our phones, through schools, through you name it, and it's Pride Month. I know that's difficult, I know that's complicated, but here's what's not complicated. God loves all people, period. The same God has a clear design in his word for the human race. And it is a man and a woman that he himself has created to be husband and wife. Those two things are not at odds with each other. So what is the pressure right now? Don't be seen as unloving. Don't be seen as homophobic. I don't even know what that means anymore. But don't be seen as that. Don't be seen on the wrong side. So there's social pressure. There's political pressure. There's financial pressure for your business. So what's happening instead? Instead of honest conversations. Instead of being unashamed to say, here's what God's word says. Like, I'm not going to preach to you. I'm not even asking you to say anything. I'm saying don't bow down to the statue. Which means change your profile pic to rainbows. How is it loving to go with Babylon instead of with God? And I get it's complicated. I get there's a lot of nuance and a lot of gray of how to handle it. But there's not any nuance and there's not any gray to God's design and what he has said. 
And it's not some isolated cultural verse for some kind of random thing. It is a thread throughout the scriptures that says this is God's design. He has made man and he has made woman for his glory and for human flourishing. But here's the deal. When you actually believe that God is sovereign over all of history and this world is not your home, it doesn't matter if somebody doesn't like you or is mad at you about this. Like you're willing to go into the cultural furnace to say this is what God has said. I don't, have, I don't have the guts to celebrate Pride Month. I don't have the guts, honestly. It's not even a fiery furnace moment for me. I don't have the guts, so I know that God is clear on this, and I'm not going to celebrate what God has specifically said that he is not for. In the book of Romans, God gives us an example of what it means to rebel against him, and the example he gives is same-sex relationships, because we're going against the created order. And again, I know there's emotions, and I, I get it. And I want this church to be for every single person in the entire world, wide open door. But please do not for a moment suggest it as unloving to simply believe that God has a design. It's not crazy. And if you're 17 years old in this room, you're not, you're not the first generation of people to, to be right about, about something. And we're seeing a generation of the ones that are giving it away and giving it away and giving it away because usually they know somebody or have a friend. Keep knowing people. Keep having friends. But know that God has a word and a design and a plan, and he takes it seriously. And it's not just about same-sex relationships. It's for marriage in general. That God speaks clearly about adultery and about pornography and, and, and about abandoning your husband or your wife and about hookup culture, because the point is God has a design, and it's a man and a woman who are married to each other. So what happens? Three things. One, we want to pursuing the world's wisdom, pursuing the world's wisdom, embracing the world's theology, and following the world's agenda. What's the world's wisdom? Duh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Of course you better bow down, or not you're going to be thrown into fire. Hello? Embracing the world's theology. What's the world's theology? Nebuchadnezzar. He is king. He is the mighty ruler. He is the all-powerful, following the world's agenda to get every single person to bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar. You can take those three things and place them into any cultural scenario we have right now. I just believe that that particular thing is our cultural moment to see if we are willing to look at the 90-foot statue and say, I love you, no. No. Will I bow down to the king or will I stand with God? And the reality is God might not keep you from the furnace when he refused to bow. See, rescue doesn't always come here and now in this earth. But we need to be clear on this, that God is not obligated to rescue people. Like every rescue there is is an act of mercy and grace. Like God did not have to rescue these three people from the fire. Neither does he have to rescue us. But there is a rescue that's guaranteed that he is bound to by his word that we can count on no matter what. And that is a rescue that God has promised in our salvation from sin. God has promised all who trust in Jesus will be saved and rescued from sin and death. It's a greater rescue that is for all eternity. It doesn't even compare to a temporary rescue now. King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 24, jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, look, I see four men. Some think it was kind of a pre-incarnate Christ, others an angel. There was a, God was clearly with them not tied, walking around the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and called Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And look, listen, listen to him get it right now. 
you servants of the most high God, come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And here comes the list of all the people. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's advisors gathered around. They saw the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair on their heads was singed. Their robes were unaffected. And there was no smell of fire on them. Nancy Guthrie, who's a great Bible teacher, she points to the fact that she believes this is almost a a pre-resurrection picture of our resurrection. That on the last days when God comes making new heavens and a new earth that we will escape all of God's judgment because Jesus was judged in our place. Jesus took on a death that we deserve. That's the good news of the gospel. And then not a hair on our heads will be singed. Our robes will be unaffected and there'll be no smell of fire on us. Why? Because God in his grace has forgiven us and declared us righteous and made us his own. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, praise the God. This is the point, guys. This is the point. Not praise the God of Babylon. Not you do you. Not you do whatever makes you happy. Praise the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's commands and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I issue a decree that any one of us, any people, nation or language, who says anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and his house made a garbage dump. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar, you do you. For there is no other god who's able to deliver us like this. There's not, that god, there's only one true god and the king rewarded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. See, here God humbles the proud and raises up the humble. We see in chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar continue to sing praises and declare praises towards the one true God. Then we see Belshazzar, a new king, in Daniel chapter five, who's very prideful, very about his world, his increase. And a famous story occurs where all of a sudden writing appears on the wall during one of his feasts and festivals. Now you've heard someone say before, the writing's on the wall. That actually comes from Daniel chapter five. And in that statement, God makes clear to him through Daniel interpreting what it says, the only one who can do it, about God's future reign, about Belshazzar and Babylon's temporary rule. In chapter six, we see the famous lion's den, Daniel in the lion's den, where a new king came into place. As a result, uh, there was favor still for Daniel, others and his friends, others did not like that, they were jealous. They were trying to find a way to get Daniel in trouble. Here's what they say in verse five of chapter six. Then these men said, we will never find any charge against this Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God. Daniel's not perfect, but he's above reproach. They know he lives for a different kingdom, for a different place and go, guys, we're not gonna find anything on him. Like he has integrity and character. He's the same guy in private that he is in public. Like he's the same guy at home that he is at work, that he is at church. Like we're... We're not going to find anything on him unless we go after his faith. So when, remember that the king signed a statement saying that if anyone for 30 days worshipped any other god or anyone or prayed to anyone but the king, they were going to be thrown into the lion's den towards their death. Let's get him on that. We know he ain't going to cave. So Daniel learned that the document had been signed. He went into his house. The windows in his upstairs room opened towards Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees, prayed, and gave thanks to his God. And I love these next few words, just as he had done before. Culture ain't changing this. I'm a worshiper of God. Answer to him, not you. Remember the, remember the dreams and the visions? You're temporary, he's not. So since you're temporary, we all matter to God and we have souls, so I'm gonna love you well. 
I'm going to love you intentionally, but I'm not going to bow down to your rules. I have a different world, a different ethic, and it's the worship of the one true God. And King Darius wrote to those people of every, we, we see what happens then, and we'll see just in a minute verse, in verse 25, what happens is he gets caught, gets thrown into the lion's den. Most people would have been killed by the lion instantly. Daniel is found the next day by King Darius. They go run to the, to the uh, stone that was put in front and sealed in the lion's den. Darius knew that Daniel was going to be okay. He, he got it. He was scared. He goes down, and there's Daniel hanging out with the lions. Just hanging out. Like they're talking about, you know, what was accurate in Lion King and what wasn't. I mean, just having a, having a conversation. I mean, Siegfried and Roy couldn't even tame tigers perfectly. And what happens? Here's Daniel hanging out with lions. King Darius wrote to those every people, nation and language, living on the whole earth. May your prosperity abound. I issue a decree that in all my royal dominion, people must tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. Not Daniel, the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and his dominion has no end. He rescues and delivers. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. For he has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. We see here that Darius rolls the stone over the mouth of the pit and seals it. Later, Joseph of Arimathea would roll a stone over the mouth of a tomb that Pilate would seal. The tomb of Jesus Christ, who was crucified. When Daniel was saved from the pit, we just read it led to the praise and worship of God in all of Babylon. To everyone who heard the good news. When Jesus was saved from the pit, when he rose from the grave, it led to the universal praise of God. And we want to get that good news of Jesus to every corner of the earth. So that every knee and every tongue and every tribe will hear the good news and respond to the good news. Then the next rest of the book is Daniel having four visions. And they all really center around the sovereignty of God, God's final judgment. It talks about the coming of a son of man, who Jesus referred to himself as in the New Testament that God was going to come and redeem a people, these persecuted people, this would not be the reality of their lives forever. We see that God rules over all the conflicts and events, that he limits their scope, that he has a precise timetable for the trials of all Christians to be completed when he finally intervenes once and for all to deliver his people for all eternity. And in the meantime, we see in chapter 11, verses 33 through 35, that the Christians... The people of God must be patient and faithful amid a hostile world, looking to the Lord alone for deliverance, loving God and loving people. And our love of people is not actual love of people if it causes us to not love God. Well, how do you love God? God says we love him by obeying his commandments. So when we think we're loving people by disobeying what God has said, we're actually not loving them at all. Todd Wilson says this important truth about Daniel. This book is definitely about Daniel and about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and lessons we can learn from them, but it's more than that. Because the human actors and events are so fascinating. We're tempted when studying this book to fix our gaze on the human plane. But when this happens, we can inadvertently lose sight of the fact that this book is ultimately not about Daniel or his three friends, but about God and his victory over the world. In other words, the purpose of this book is not be more like Daniel, even though there is some principles there. Instead, it's worship Daniel's God. Because he is the one true God, not Nebuchadnezzar, not Darius. Babylon is not the true kingdom. 
Yes, wicked kings will attack God's people, chapter seven through 12 tell us. They're gonna destroy the temple. They're gonna exalt themselves in the place of God. God's people are gonna be persecuted, but they're called to be faithful. And God will deliver them just as he delivered Daniel from the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for the furnace once and for all. God will raise us from the dead and make a new heavens and a new earth. The sovereignty of God is a great theme in this book. And I love this. I'm going to close with this passage. Many who sleep in dust, this is chapter 12, very end of the book, on the earth will awake. Some to eternal life. That's the promise to a persecuted people. And some to disgrace and eternal contempt. Those who have insight will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. You can't lead people to righteousness and shine like a star when you're taking your cues and your marching orders from Babylon. Some of this is a little bit heavy today. The book of Daniel is heavy. You can't avoid it. But let's be part of a church that's not afraid to say, here's what the Bible says, and let's wrestle together of how to make sense of it and apply it to our lives. And I think it begins with submitting ourselves to the scriptures. I think that's where it starts. Submitting ourselves to the scriptures because that is what God has given us to understand who he is, how he's ruling this world, and what that means for his people. So are we going to choose Babylon or are we going to choose Christ? I want to love the one who loved me first and who loves me back and always, even when I mess up, because the world doesn't love you back when you mess up. You get this much off the political messaging, the, the woke messaging, the make America great again messaging, whatever the messaging is, you get this far off of it, it's not forgiving. You get ostracized, you get labeled. You know what your label is with God? Forgiven, adopted, sons, daughters, secure, his. How much better is that than anything this world has to offer? Let's choose Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that you reign throughout history, that it is undeniable that you are sovereign. We see in Daniel, even the kings and the rulers and the greatest empires are subject to you. How amazing to know that same God is the God who loves us personally and knows us by name. Lord, I ask we respond to the good news of who you are, what you've done for us in Jesus, forgiveness of our sins, guaranteeing us a future resurrection by giving lives, by giving our lives to honor you. We're thankful for the great name of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing some good news together.